Hey guys, you're listening to another podcast recorded at Red Hat Summit 2013. Today we're going to be releasing the talk that John Masters gave on hyperscale computing. It was a pretty packed out room. Last year, John's antics sitting in Lycra on a racing bike powering some ARM servers, uh, some 32-bit ARM servers, drew a packed room and was a very popular download on YouTube. This year, John did a world first. He managed to get some 64-bit hyperscale ARM processor chips and some servers and demoed them for the first time anywhere in the world to a packed room. So I decided that I'd stick my recording gear in there and I'd record the thing because it's over an hour long, but it's really worth listening to if you're into ARM and if you're into hyperscale computing. So pin back your ears. Here's John Masters. The title of today's talk is Hyperscale Red Hat Powered ARM Server. My name is John Masters. I'm the chief ARM architect at Red Hat. Uh, and a little team we like to call the A-team, the ARM team within Red Hat. Uh, I like it when a plan comes together. And, uh, you know, there, there really are many aspects to Red Hat's involvement with the ARM community, or in the ARM community, right? Um, there's a very broad open source community uh, around the ARM architecture and around ARM-powered devices, um, both from within Red Hat, from the Fedora community, and of course from other open source communities that I will mention as well. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking here as a member of Red Hat, and there is certainly a Red Hat leaning to this talk, but I want to make sure everyone understands that, you know, we are members of the Fedora community here, and there are many other people beyond those of us in Red Hat who are working uh, very diligently to make this whole thing a success. So, you know, big shout out to the guys in the Fedora community as well. Um, we couldn't do this without them, and we are very, very, very proud of our achievements together. So with that said, most of you probably came here because I offered something uh, to, to get you, enticed you in. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give away three Raspberry Pis. Um, these are inexpensive. These, this is not a kind of dessert. Uh, these are three inexpensive ARM-powered devices. Um, and Raspberry Pi is... Uh, kind of very exciting because, you know, you can buy these for $35, so if you are an enthusiast, you can go pick one up and play on the weekend, but perhaps more importantly, if you are, you know, either in the developing world or you're working in education and academia, you're working with children, you're wanting to get people interested in hacking on devices and understanding how computers work, these are very accessible devices. Okay, $35 is, is a very uh, good price point for this kind of thing. Uh, if you go to the Fedora area outside on this floor, um, where incidentally I will be after this talk, um, you can you know, get a hands-on session. There's a lot of kind of Raspberry Pi hacking that's going on. So if you want to learn more about the Raspberry Pi, that's a great place to go right after this session. So toward the end, I'm going to do a, a prize drawing. I'll give away three of these guys. Um, you can get some more information uh, about Fedora support for the Raspberry Pi by going to Pidora, P-I-D-O-R-A dot C-A. Uh, there's a Fedora remix available for the Raspberry Pi that you can download, put onto an SD card, put it into this device, and off you go. If you want any help with that, again, in the Fedora area outside, we will be doing that later on today. Uh, full competition rules are available upon request. Somebody could always ask for that. If they do, we have them. Okay, so 
what are we talking about here today? So what I want to do at first is kind of recap where we were one year ago. Okay, so last year I did a kind of, well, I think I did a pretty memorable talk. You know, it certainly got some good and interesting feedback. Uh, you had me and Skin Tight Lycra, I'm sorry, uh, pedal powering uh, an ARM server. Um, and I was trying to make a point there that I'll come back to about the energy efficiency aspect and why uh, hyperscale computing and ARM-powered devices interest me in particular. Um, but last year was really the first time you heard Red Hat say a lot about ARM and our involvement in the ARM architecture. I like to think that about a year ago as well, ARM servers really became a reality. Prior to that, but certainly last year, that's the breakthrough point. You start to see HP Moonshot, you see uh, Dell Copper, you see various different projects out there that are making waves around um, ARM-powered servers. Um, and you know, this time last year, I stood on the stage and I had a 32-bit uh, you know, ARM server, a real server running a real demo. I'm going to one-up that a little bit today. I've got a 64-bit, well, more than one 64-bit ARM server to show you, and more about that later. Uh, since last year, we've had a lot of other stuff that's happened, too. We've had a release of Fedora 18, which fully supports the ARM architecture on many different devices. Um, we've migrated the Fedora ARM build system from devices that look a lot like this, and bigger brothers to these, uh, to a, a, a real... Uh, server class um, system. We co-founded the Lenaro Enterprise Group. We'll talk some more about that later on. Um, and we began work, in public at least. Uh, certainly, there's more to talk about there. But certainly in public, we, we made waves around the 64-bit AArch64, um, 64-bit architecture as part of our um, AArch64 bootstrap for Fedora. So hyperscale computing, uh, what is hyperscale computing? Well, a couple of weeks ago, if you went to Wikipedia, um, there was no article on hyperscale computing. Okay? I did not write this. I'd love to think that I did. Um, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we remarked at an event in New York, myself and Larry Wachilius from Calzada, uh, another um, server company, that, uh, that there was no Wikipedia article. Someone has written one since then. Uh, they have cited my talk from Red Hat Summit last year. Uh, in creating this. So I'd like to think we have very heavily influenced the definition of what hyperscale computing means. Uh, feel free to edit and augment this article um, in any way that you see fit, appropriate to, to the course. What does hyperscale computing mean? So hyperscale to me is not just a buzzword. It means various things. It means having an order of magnitude higher density of compute in a single unit of space. And the granularity that we typically talk about is the rack level. Okay? It's taking mobile concepts like SOC, system on chip, applying that to the server space. It's integrating fabric technologies. It's disaggregating resources. It's including a very, very easy management and provisioning, moving that right on chip. Um, and it's adopting new concepts like failure in place. When you pull all these concepts together, you have hyperscale computing. It doesn't work with any one of these, but it's really happening at a time when all these different pieces are falling into place at the same point. Okay, so let's take these one at a time. Let's take density. So we go from racks that today have tens or hundreds of blades in a rack 
to the point where we have between 1,000 and 10,000 or more nodes in the same space, in a single rack. Okay? But that in itself isn't interesting. That's just you know, putting more compute power in the same space. What's really interesting is that you connect all of these together. They're very tightly connected uh, in a fabric kind of configurable network that we'll talk some more about. Um, it, it just reinforces the point that you know, multi-core approaches won the gigahertz war, right? So you know, we've really realized in the last 10 years that just trying to bump up the clock speed and increase the performance of linear uh, CPU core performance, that doesn't scale, right? The future is multi-core. What we do in the hyperscale space is we take this concept and we say, well, you know, I could build very, very massive uh, systems with fully coherent uh, NUMA-based, you know, thousands of, no thousands of CPUs in the same system. Or I could say, well, a lot of workloads now don't need that. They just need a lot of nodes. And I can use technologies like Hadoop, like MapReduce. I can use various other clustering technologies to farm workloads out across many individual nodes. Each of these nodes is running its own full operating system. Um, but they all work together over this very tightly connected fabric network. So it's many simpler nodes. By doing that, we can benefit from uh, improvements in energy efficiency. And the target is aggregate performance across many, many nodes. Okay? They may not individually win performance wars, but that's not the point. The point is, if I have one rack or I have many racks, in aggregate, I achieve the level of performance that I'm looking for. We also have concepts like physicalization versus virtualization. So the last few years, it's been a big push towards virtualizing workloads for reconciliation, rationalizing all these different nodes that I have into one big system. To an, in, an ex, in a similar kind of way, physicalization takes the same concept, but rather than taking all these individual workloads and pulling them onto one system, uh, I'm instead uh, taking these individual workloads and putting them onto small individual nodes within a rack. We provision these elastically. We reprovision them very often. Okay, so you might have a rack that's running various web apps, that's running various database services, and so on. And you might be reprovisioning, reinstalling these nodes even many times per day. This really fits into the kind of DevOps, uh, you know, very very agile development mode of development that we're seeing now, where you take your operating system. You put together a system image with all the pieces that you want to go into production. You iterate on that very quickly. Right? So hyperscale computing really kind of fits very, very closely with the agile development process. We do have some technical challenges involved in doing this. Of course, if you have 10,000 nodes in a single rack, and you turn them all on, and you have one Pixie server, and you're trying to boot them all across the network, well, that's not going to scale. So we've got some issues there we have to solve, and we're starting to work on that as well. Okay, so the SOC piece of this, system on chip, is a technology that happened first in the mobile space, right? Your cell phone is the size that it is because we've taken this level of miniaturization. We've taken all these discrete devices that used to be independent of the CPU, and we've put them on the same piece of silicon. So now, inside your cell phone, you have a chip, but it's not just got a CPU in it. You've got all the different I.O. devices, all the other pieces that you need in a full compute system, all integrated on the chip. In the case of these emerging ARM server devices, 
you know, you've got your ARM piece, you've got your compute core, which is, of course, important. We do want to perform some compute, after all. But you've also got all these other interconnects, all these other IOs. They're all integrated onto the same chip. We've even got management integrated onto the chip as well. So if you want to talk IPMI, provision a system, powered on, powered off, you are talking directly to the chip itself. You've got a very, very fine-grained level of control. You don't need an external BMC to do that. You also have Fabric Interconnect built right onto the chip as well. So these different nodes, they have very, very tight uh, fabric interconnectivity between them. So, you know, commoditization, we've integrated a lot of devices. In the server space, we've also taken the concept of offload engines. You guys know about crypto accelerators, TCP offload, you know, all these kinds of things. But I'm starting to see some really funky stuff happening here, right, beyond that. You know, so say you like regular expression passing. Maybe you put that into an offload engine. There's a lot of things that you can do when you have flexibility to add components to your chip in this way. So we're going to see very flexible designs built around standard cores. It's not just an ARM story. Of course, x86, other architectures, the hyperscale concept is, is, is happening in the industry as a whole. But I think in the ARM space, it's particularly interesting because of the way that the ARM licensing model works. So you can go to ARM, you can pay them a, a royalty fee, um, and you can go make your own ARM chip. Right? You can license that architecture as a server company, and you can build your own design. This means that you can build very, very standard compatible parts from many different vendors with very, very compatible ARM cores on there, but you can put around that all kinds of customization, kinds of offload engines, fabric, management controllers. Eventually, we will get to a point where we're able to integrate memory and flash even onto the chip as well. Your cell phone today has the concept of package on package. They actually stack the memory on top of the chip today. We can't get the density there quite for a server yet, but in the future, we will be able to do this as well. So the fabric piece, this graphic I like to use to kind of demonstrate where I think modern data center networks are today. Right? This is your plug board. Hello, operator. I need to make a phone call. Please plug a patch cable in here. Right? You have people scurrying around data centers, plugging and unplugging network cables, and, and you know, everyone's seen rat's nest wire, uh, wiring messes and, and, and the disasters that ensue. Right? Fabric is about saying, if I've got a rack full of nodes, let me build the interconnect right into that. Let's not have these external networking ports. Let's do away with the top of rack switch. Let's integrate all of that. Let's have the individual chips communicating across a backplane. We will ultimately have to have some network interconnectivity, but we're not going to have the you know, thousand network cables coming out of the rack in the future. That doesn't scale. So Fabric's more than that, though. Fabric is, yeah, it's about obviating the need for individual cabling, and it's about obsoleting the top of rack switch, and all these things. But it's also about taking the concept of software-defined networking and really applying that. You know, it's not just a concept here. We have the ability to very, very flexibly reconfigure our networking at runtime on the fly. You know, Red Hat is involved in a lot of projects like Open Daylight that are really going to let us take software-defined networking and put that into the data center in the future. 
Disaggregation is another concept that I see happening in hyperscale computing. This is about saying I have different classes of different kinds of uh, node in my system. So I've got compute nodes. I've got maybe some memory key value storage nodes. I've got uh, disk storage. I've got network attached storage devices. If I can aggregate these across my fabric, what I can do is I can have them depreciate on different schedules. So I can say, on a three-year schedule, I'm going to replace these pieces. On a five-year schedule, I'm going to replace these pieces. I can disaggregate exactly how I uh, spend my, my, my capital on my data center and replace the different pieces as needed. So I leverage falling pr prices, and I can replace on different timelines. Now, Facebook Open Compute is blazing a trail here, but you will see more about disaggregation over the coming years. Another concept is failure in place. This is saying, if I have 10,000 nodes in a rack, what happens if one of those fails? Well, what happened when one of those pixels on your TV failed at home, right? You probably didn't even notice. Okay? What happened when the disk block went bad in your laptop? You didn't notice because the disk controller remapped it automatically. That's what it does. It has done that for years. Do the same thing for servers. There is no point calling out some person to come with a crash cart, take out a node, and replace it. If you've got 10,000 of them in a rack, let it go. It's dead. It's dead, Jim. It's failed. Leave it. Let it fail there, OK? Mark it bad. Move on. OK? So for me, what hyperscale computing means for the data center of the future is that data centers are very, very dark places. Nobody goes. Nobody wants to go there. It's a box in the middle of nowhere, near cheap generation of power. Okay? What you do when you build one, you build it very efficiently. You flood fill it with these hyperscale systems, very, very high density. You have a fabric connecting all these pieces together. Million node systems become very commonplace, right? Fail in place. And on a three to five year schedule, you come back in, replace all the nodes, and repeat that process forevermore. Right? You don't have people scurrying around with crash cuts. You do not have the same data center that you've had in the past. This is where hyperscale computing is going to take us. So beyond hyperscale computing, this time last year, you know, I, think, I think ARM servers really became a reality. Right? I talked about the ARM IP licensing model, how you can go make your own ARM chip if you have sufficient resources to do so. Last year, I showed a Calzada Energy Core powered HP Redstone Moonshot server. I guess I should say Gemini now, because HP have uh, announced that. Um, this took the 32 bit ARM processor core, integrated management, integrated fabric. It's built around system on chip, has all these concepts. That's a year ago, right? They've moved on since then, right? But this is really the first time that you've seen a lot of these concepts uh, in practice. And those of you who were here last year may have recalled the, the demo that I gave. Um, this is the skin tight Liker. I apologize for that. Um, and you know what I built here was uh, a bicycle power rig just to kind of make the point that actually these systems are much lower power. Each of these ARM server SOCs, each of these nodes, uses only five watts of power when it's running. Not hundreds of watts, five watts, right? So you can actually power a fully populated um, chassis of nodes with a bicycle. And it did work. And it really, I think, helped a lot of people to understand that actually this thing could be interesting and it could go places.
So, since last year, we've released Fedora 18. And Fedora 18, I think, is really one of the first points where we've had a really standard story for uh, ARM devices. Not just these ARM development boards that you can buy for 35 bucks and put an SD card in and run Fedora, but also for ARM servers. Standard Red Hat technologies like Kickstart, you can just provision these servers and go. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So we support many of the popular devices. You know, I've got a Google Chromebook running Fedora. Um, you, can, you can go buy many of these devices and put Fedora on them. One thing we did do was we dropped support for some of the older ARM architectures. ARM version 5 and earlier, you know, not really very popular in the last few years. And Fedora is all about moving forward very quickly. So we, we kind of you know, cast aside some of the older stuff in the same way that you do for any other architecture. So we now require at least ARM version 7, which is anything that's shipped in the last few years. And Fedora 18 was really the most complete standardized release yet. So as an example of that, here's a before and after. This is the Fedora build system, Fedora ARM build system, when we began getting involved a few years ago. Right? This is a very, very well put together system. Uh, built around kind of IKEA shelving. I don't want to be disparaging to the guys that built it because they built it using the hardware they had available at the time. Okay, these are development boards kind of strung together with network cables and a server. This is what we replaced it with a few months ago. Okay, this is an industry standard Boston Veritas Calzada Energy Core powered server. We've put a couple of these into our Phoenix data center we have deployed Fedora 18 on them as Fedora ARM builders, deployed without any problem at all. The guys that did it did not have any ARM expertise, not beyond what they might have read about. They used standard tools, Kickstart, Puppet, and so on, all the standard Red Hat infrastructure. They've deployed it, and so far we've had a 100% reliability record. Right? So let's just show that again. Before, that's, that's a year ago. That's where we are now. So it began life as Panda on a Stick. Um, and I guess I've, I've kind of mentioned a lot of these things here. So, you know, we've had no downtime. It was really a very, very boring story. We just put these systems in and off we went. Another thing that happened since last year is the formation of the Lenara Enterprise Group. And I'm kind of coming to a point in my talk here where I want to speak a little bit more about Red Hat's direct involvement in leading and driving where ARM goes in the future. So last fall, well, I guess last summer even, when we had Red Hat Summit, we were already starting to work on some of these things. Of course, we always have a few secrets up our sleeve. One of them was LEG, Lenara Enterprise Group. We got together with a lot of different vendors, um, and we decided we had to work together to kind of solve common issues for the enterprise. This is Warren East um, speaking at... Uh, Arm TechCon last fall during the announcement of LEG. Now, he couldn't be here today, but uh, I do have George Gray, who's the CEO of Lenaro, and I'd like to invite him up to just say a couple of words about LEG. Thank you, George. Thanks very much, John. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, John's asked me to talk uh, very briefly about... Um, the Lenaro Enterprise Group. For those of you who are not familiar with Lenaro, um, 
The great thing about ARM is its business model, right? It's not just about low-power devices. As John said, its business model encourages innovation um, in a way that, that other architectures don't do. So ARM provides core technology to a number of different SOC vendors who, around common ARM cores, are building hugely innovative devices from mobile to networking to, to, to now server. The challenge of that is every company who's doing that um, doesn't want to go and create all of their own software again and again and again, right? And the whole story about open source is can we create a single uh, software architecture that then each of these companies can innovate on top of? And Lenaro was formed three years ago to uh, be a place where the ARM ecosystem and vendors could come together and work together on open source enablement software for the ecosystem. And it's been a huge success. We have 25 members uh, today, ranging from most of the big SOC companies to startups to end users and distributions. And so last year when uh, John and, and Red Hat and HP and Facebook and a number of other companies approached us and said, this ARM server space is getting very interesting, but we need some help on software, on working together to build the software ecosystem. We said we thought that was a great idea, and we formed the Lenaro Enterprise Group. On the right, yeah. Oh. There we go. So the Lenaro Enterprise Group is focused on the ARM server ecosystem. It's an upstream-focused development effort. Everything we do in Lenaro is open, and the community is welcome to participate. Uh, it's a collaboration between a number of companies interested in the ARM ecosystem, ranging from end users like Facebook and HP, distributions uh, like Red Hat and Canonical, and then um, SOC vendors, Applied Micro, Calceda, Samsung, uh, a number of SOC vendors interested in building ARM server SOCs. And our goal is to have a common implementation of standards. We're a software engineering company. We have close to 200 engineers working in Lenaro on open source software for ARM. The enterprise group focused on the ARM server ecosystem was announced on November the 12th, in, in November last year at TechCon. And Red Hat actually represent the Lenaro enterprise group on the main Lenaro uh, technical steering committee. And the way Lenaro works is a combination of, of money, which we use to buy engineers and, and, and fund engineering effort, and assignees from all of our members. And the Red Hat assignees are working on a number of pieces of core technology within the Lenaro enterprise group with their peers from other companies, and specifically working on some of the ACPI for ARM and validation aspects of, of what Lenaro is doing. So we're delighted to be a part of this. We're really excited by, by what's happening, and we welcome any help and contributions that anybody would like to make. John, thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. Thank you. See, the great thing with Lenaro is I get to hang out with all my friends, which is, which is wonderful. So I think two, two takeaways from what George is saying are really collaboration and connection. So the reason that we're all part of Lenaro Enterprise Group and part of Lenaro is that we realize Red Hat is powerful. We are big. We are, a, we are an industry leader. But we don't want to do this alone. 
right? That's not the way that we do things. We collaborate in the community. So we've reached out to George and to, and to David here at Lenaro, and we worked out a way to bring everybody together so we can solve common issues where it doesn't make sense to have gratuitous differentiation. One thing that really interests me also there is the connection aspect. So the Lenaro events that we attend are actually called Connect. And the theme for Red Hat Summit this year is Connect, right? So, you know, we're all, we're all kind of working together here for really trying to achieve the same thing. So I'm very proud of what we've done so far with Lenaro, and I look forward to uh, many more years working together. Okay, so other things that have happened over the last year. We shipped, or we are about to ship, Fedora 19. Okay, it's in beta right now. Um, it's going to release concurrently with the other architectures that Fedora supports. So not only is it increasingly standard, but it's looking a lot like the other architectures in terms of when you see it. It's not lagging weeks or months behind anything else. Right? We're shipping at the same time. We're going to support more 32-bit ARM systems. We're going to include support for emerging servers, even more than we have in the past. We're going to see support over the coming months for Cortex-A15 and LPAE technologies. These extend the 32-bit ARM architecture um, and let that to go in new and interesting directions, including virtualization support. It, again, will be the most complete release of Fedora for ARM yet. So, a little segue here. Something else that we've been working on for many years now, uh, both within Red Hat and more recently outside of Red Hat. Um, we've been collaborating very closely with ARM on the 64-bit ARM architecture. I'd like to take a few minutes here just to talk through that um, and really explain to you, you know, what it is we've been up to and what it is that we're going to be doing over the coming months and years ahead. Okay, so I guess these are the, take these are the key points here. Right? Red Hat has collaborated with ARM for many years. Right? Some things you've seen in public, other things we've collaborated on behind the scenes, but this relationship has been going on for quite some time. We're working with every single one of the 64-bit ARM silicon vendors that are out there, many of which have announced themselves, some of which have not. These guys will all implement the 64-bit architecture from ARM. Some will license it directly, implementing ARM's Atlas core uh, Cortex A57 and the A53 series. Others will implement the architecture themselves. I'm very privileged to have somebody from one of those companies here today, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. We'll support both of these approaches, and we will have a standard release of Fedora that supports the 64-bit architecture. What we've done over the last few years is work closely with ARM to review elements of the architecture design to work on standardization, to make sure that when we get to the 64-bit world for ARM, you do not have gratuitous differentiation, you do have a standard story, things do just work. I'll talk some more about that in a moment. We've worked very closely upstream in reviewing and assisting with patching. We will be doing more of this over the coming months and years ahead. And we're very privileged uh, to have Andrew Haley amongst us here, who is leading the effort to port Java in particular, OpenJDK, uh, to the 64-bit AARCH64 architecture. This is an example of Red Hat's leadership. Okay? So we don't just follow other people. We lead. 
we have knowledge experts. We have some of the best and brightest people in the industry, and they are working to make sure that when customers come to us in the future and say, what is Red Hat's plan for 64-bit ARM? We're able to respond. Okay? So we have folks working on these core technology pieces. Let's talk about what's involved in porting to a new architecture. We have these different stages. We have the design and definition of the architecture. We have a process of standardization. We have a process of implementing that hardware, the architecture, into, into silicon. We have to get various parts of the software stack up and running. We have to get our distributions of Linux made available and released. We have to put it all together. That might, might mean a product. It might mean you know, all kinds of end results. At the design and definition stage, what you're doing is you're figuring out, what is that I'm trying to achieve? In ARM's case, I think it was fairly straightforward. They had a 32-bit architecture, which is wonderful, and you know, they shipped 12 billion with a B ARM cores last year. Right? ARM is the most popular architecture on Earth. Right? There's a 95% chance or higher that you have an ARM in your pocket right now powering your cell phone. I certainly have one in my pocket and also on my hip powering my little Fitbit here. Right, so the 32-bit architecture is phenomenally successful, but it is 32-bit, and obviously people do want more. They want a 64-bit architecture. Okay. So what we do is we have some design parameters here. Right? ARM is always about energy efficiency. Low power is their DNA, and so that fit into the criteria. Design something that is very energy efficient and true to the heritage of reduced complexity. Okay, so once you've got a broad design for the architecture, you, know, you start with software modeling, kind of take that, put it into uh, various test models. Could use QMU, or you could use something that's proprietary. And you start to port elements of your tool chain, your assemblers, your compilers, and so on. You profile code that you build using those tools, and you say, okay, well, how well did that actually work out? And you feed that back into the design process. So modern, modern architectures are not just some guys sitting around in a room saying, this is what we want to do. They actually take feedback all along the way, feed that back into the design process. And you implement reference models, make those available to different teams to work on development, and you begin work on implementing that into silicon. There are different stages of silicon design, and I guess we, we don't need to go into too much here. Um, Suffice it to say that you, know, you have a, an interim stage here. We have an FPGA, Field Programmable Gate Array, which is, if you like, a very expensive piece of hardware that synthesizes the end result. Very privileged within Red Hat to be involved very early on. We, we do actually have FPGA hardware from one of our 64-bit uh, uh, silicon vendors that we've been running Fedora on for some time. Okay, so we didn't just step into this at the last minute. We've been working on this for a long time. Here's an example of an FPGA platform. These things are extremely expensive, but they can be used to validate and prove that, for example, Fedora boots on them way ahead of silicon availability. Standardization is important. I often joke that my three favorite words are shall, will, and must, used copiously in standardization documents. But what I really mean is I don't like gratuitous differentiation. I like my servers to boot and work in a certain standard way, and you do too. 
When you turn it on, you have certain expectations. And if I come to you and I say, that's great, but now we're going to do it all this way, you're going to turn to me and say, that's great, I'm not going to use anything you've just told me about. So we're not going to do that, right? You standardize the pieces that you need to standardize. So you have your application binary interface, make sure software is compatible. Standardize certain components of the hardware to make sure that things look a little bit similar enough that an OS can boot on them. And you standardize components of the software platform. Yeah, not everybody loves UEFI, not everybody loves ACPI, but these are industry standards that work well, or well enough. And we don't see a need to differentiate there. So we're going to adopt these existing standards where it makes sense. Where it does not make sense, we will come up with new standards, but we will not have 20 different ways to do the same thing. So the next stage is to take the open source software stack, kind of generically. You know, you've got your basic tool chain. You need to get that ported to the new architecture. You have to begin work on porting the Linux kernel, different system libraries like glibc, and you have to patch various other pieces to make sure you can build for the new architecture. One thing you want to do here is you want to guide upstream developers, use your knowledge and expertise to make sure they understand what they need to do. You know, putting the kernel is a complicated process. I'm going to kind of skip through this a little bit. Um, but I think two things I want to mention here. The Linux kernel is incredibly portable. It supports more than 31 different architectures. Adding a new one is not that big a deal. Initial support for ARCH64, the 64-bit ARM architecture, was added in 3.7. And support for the first SOC platforms landed in 3.10. Supporting Fedora, this is something that we've been working on very closely for the last few months and for the last year. New bootstraps are very complex. Okay? Fedora is native built. We build Fedora on the target hardware. We don't cross-compile. We don't use x86 systems to build for mainframe or power. Right? We don't do that for ARM either. We build on the target hardware. That can cause a problem if you don't have the hardware. Right? So there's some issues to solve. Um, one thing you can do is you can leverage past experiences to make your life easier. So what we did for ARM v7 way back when in Fedora 15 Right? Myself and some others knew the 64-bit architecture was coming. We might have steered the process a little bit, said, you know what? There's this new hard float ABI for ARM version 7. It'd be really good if we supported that. And it is good, and it does improve performance on 32-bit, and it is wonderful, and it's great, and it was a good thing for Fedora and a good thing to do. But the way it was done was more complete and more complex than it needed to be, intentionally, so that we knew how to do a complete architectural bootstrap from scratch. So we defined a process, a five-stage process. I missed stage six, you know, profit, right at the end. But um, we have this process. We start using cross-compilation on x86 systems. We go through a native build process on hardware. Um, we go through multiple different sort of iterations here ending up with the ability to run Koji, which is the standard Fedora build system. And this took a period of a few months to complete in the 32-bit case. So we kind of took that. We fed that into 64-bit. And it looks very similar, what we're doing here for 64-bit. I think the only difference is we start out without hardware. Um, 
So we are using software models. So we, we were using software models in the early days. Software models, you know, instead of taking a couple of hours to build a kernel, uh, you, you might take a couple of days, right? So building GCC at first, you're looking at two to three weeks to build it, right? So it's not exactly easy going at first. This is true for any new architecture. It's not unique to ARM. Same thing would happen anywhere. Um, once you have hardware, you can really ramp up the process, and then you're building in the same way you would for anything else. So we're kind of rapidly approaching stage five, which is the point that we can use standardized tooling. We've gone through the pain. We have solved these problems, so you do not have to. Um, and we're going to get to a point where we can deploy our standard build system using standard 64-bit hardware. So putting it all together, 64-bit Fedora ARM systems will be entirely clean. We've also made some smart choices, I think. We're not going to support multi-lib. We're not going to support running 32-bit binaries on 64-bit systems. It is a 64-bit clean architecture. It has built-in virtualization. It has all these features. If you want to run 32-bit apps, if you have 32-bit ARM apps in production, you can do that inside a virtualized environment. You don't need to have this backward compatibility support. So we're not going to have it. We're also going to go for 64K page sizes. We're going to make a lot of smart choices that we could not retroactively change further down the road. They will boot using UEFI and ACPI. No more U-boot. None of this embedded bootloader stuff, right? Very standardized. We're working on reference model environments with Lenaro so that we can say this is what a system should look like. And we will have a Fedora 19 remix that supports the first 64-bit um, hardware. Over the next few Fedora cycles, we will increasingly have standardized support for these systems. This is a, unfortunately, slightly larger version of myself a few years ago. I guess that's the, the right way around, right? Uh, at um, TechCon in 2011, this is when our good friends at Applied Micro first announced that they were working on a 64-bit ARM chip. They announced on the same day that ARM announced the architecture. This is me on stage during their announcement. Right? The reason I'm putting this here is to tell you, you know, we have been working with the good folks at Applied Micro and the good folks at ARM and Lenaro for many years on this stuff. So Red Hat and Applied Micro. So Applied Micro are the first 64-bit ARM silicon vendor. They won't be the last, but they're certainly the first. Um, they presented at TechCon, and over the last uh, year or so, you've seen more clarity into their plans in public. They've announced XGene, which is the uh, chip that they're working on. We have a multi-year long-term partnership. Okay? We collaborated pre-silicon. We collaborated post-silicon, and we are continuing to collaborate. Right. We've worked on FPGA platforms. We've booted Fedora in the lab. We have done all kinds of things that are perhaps a radical departure in terms of what you might have done in the past. In the past, we would wait way, way later, and we, we get the bits from, from uh, you know, Silicon Vendor X of a different architecture, and we're further down the process. But in the case of ARM, we're very involved very early on. We're really leading the way here. We're going to ship support for XGene out of the box it's going to just work on this hardware. Um, and we've been collaborating with Applied, uh, even in helping to design and put input into the design process for their reference board. 
I would like to invite Ed Gassiareski from Applied Micro to come up and say a few words about the uh, development board that we've been working on. I don't need that. Okay. Afternoon. Thanks, John. Um, John's going to be getting... <laughs> the demo ready. No, I'm feeding back. Okay. To do this then. It was, that board specifically designed for silicon validation. We started getting a few of those platforms out into the community for software development work. Shortly after that, we also started working on what's now called the XC1 evaluation demo platform. It was designed specifically with input from people like John and Red Hat, the folks at ARM, Lenaro, also members of the community. And the picture you saw up there a few minutes ago was that board. As we went through the evolution of designing that board and getting the requirements of the community, it was quite an interesting debate that went on as to what needs to be exposed. There was so much functionality within the... Is that better? Ah. So much functionality within the SOC. Eight high-performance ARM cores operating up to 2.4 gigahertz. Multiple interfaces, Ethernet, SATA, USB. We also ensured that we provided all the debug interfaces for kernel development, OS development, and also embedded development. So once we spec the board and actually came out with the first versions of the EVK, we needed to get it out to the partners. So there were two options. One, a lot of the developers in the community said, just give it to us and we'll put it on our desktop. Fine, we could do that. The other one, we needed to ship it in chassis. The interesting realization came is we are not a server manufacturer, so we just went out and procured standard chassis. And the thing we found out very quickly was that we couldn't find a chassis that was small enough and had a small enough power supply to match the low power of the ARM system. So unfortunately, we are stuck with a traditional x86 chassis for shipping this just to protect the board. So the EBK1, John is actually one of the first recipients of our first build of the EBK1 board. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, the EBK1 board, the picture was a little deceiving, is actually fits in my palm of my hand. And it brings out at least one of every interface on the card. 
with a few exceptions, we actually brought out two memory interfaces. I think I'm stuck up here, aren't I? Are you? <laughs> so shall I uh, walk through the demo, I guess? Or? So I want okay, to turn so. it over to John. So. <laughs> this board, again, John's got the first one. We are in, in the process now of starting to release these boards to selected partners. And over the coming months, uh, these will be made more available. And there'll be more information coming soon. Yes. Thank, thank you very much, Ed. And actually, thank you for, you know, this has been a round of applause, please. Thank you. So I've been working with Ed. Uh, if you look at my cell phone sometime, uh, I think ARM conferencing is my number one best friend, according to my phone. Red Hat conferencing is number two. Ed is my third best friend, and so on, right? So you can tell how my life is. Um, this is a very, very interesting development board. This is your, this is the next generation. This is a 64-bit development board. I fed input into the design process, standardized JTAG interfaces, inexpensive, so you can use OpenOCD for debugging. Things that community members are going to care about, things that Fedora people are going to care about. We're going to boot this in a standard way. We're going to have Fedora available for this board. I want to make a couple of points here. Uh, feel free, if you're on Twitter, to use the hashtag uh, poundarmservers with an S, or poundarm, to, uh, to mention this. Of course, poundrhsummit is good, too. Um, this is the first time that I know of that anybody has seen a live demonstration of a standard operating system ever running on 64-bit ARM hardware anywhere. This is the first time anyone anywhere has ever seen a multi-node, more than one 64-bit ARM server anywhere. Um, this is the first time that you've seen Fedora running on hardware. Let me uh, bring this up here. So you might have seen I was booting up this system, and I'm told that the edge of the world is about there for the camera, so I'm going to move this over. OK. So the noise here is really just because these are standard chassis. These boards are actually, you know, they don't have any particular power requirements over and above any other ARM development board. It's unfortunate that when you use a standard chassis, you get all the fan noise. I was going to disconnect them, but you know these are rarer than gold dust, so I decided to leave that alone. Now, you might have seen it booting up while, I was, uh, while we were talking. It boots up in the same kind of time that any other Linux system boots. I can run standard commands, you know, uname A, uname M. You can see the architecture, RPM commands, you know, QA. Let's get a list of all the RPMs on there. Oh, look, it doesn't take all day, right? It's, uh, this is real hardware. This is really running ARCH64, OK, twice. But that's not exactly exciting, is it? So here's, a, here's Apache running twice. OK, but you know, that's not exciting either. So here's WordPress running twice on both systems. OK, and then what would you, you know, so, so uh, after this talk, this hardware is going to be over in the Fedora area. I'm sure you guys are going to be very interested to, to come and take some pictures and talk to me and Ed and others about uh, what we're doing here. We'd love to tell you more about it. I'm kind of running short on time. So what I'm going to tell you here is, you know, we've got some standard blog posts here that we can go through, you know, and we can run standard WordPress and we can edit stuff. And isn't that great? Well, that is great. But then I kind of got thinking, you know, what else could we do? Right? So you might have seen while we were talking there, I ran one command after booting this system. And that was, uh, 
Well, let me bring that up there. See, I ran... Oh, look, Mount, Mount Gluster. Um, so let's, uh, let's take a look. What happens if I run... Uh, it's a Gluster volume info, right? Oh, look at that. We've got ClusterFS running between the two, the two bricks, the two systems here, right? So they're both exporting bricks into a shared ClusterFS volume. This is also the first time anyone's ever seen ClusterFS running on 64-bit. You get the idea. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show you a streaming video demo. If the demo gods are in my favor, and they are, um, this is Big Buck Bunny, which was a collaborative project to produce, uh, you know, kind of an open source uh, video animation. Apologize for the playback. That's this uh, little um, laptop powered by a different architecture uh, that's having a few issues with the video. But um, what's happening here is it's actually streaming this video from a GlusterFS volume uh, that's been being exported by both of these systems, right? So each one has a Mount Gluster. And that's backed by export data, SDA4, in this case, on each one. Um, you know, I'm sure you guys take my word for it, but you know, that is actually running. Um, if I run mount, you can see it's, it's a fused GlusterFS volume. Right? So this is really Gluster. It's really working. Uh, this, is, this is a full LAMP stack running GlusterFS on 64-bit ARM silicon. Nobody's ever seen this before until today. Um, and, um, Thank you very much. Now, before we finish, I would like to give you guys Oh, excellent. Excellent. So I guess I'm going to give these away. Should I give them away in the traditional fashion? I think you should go. Okay. All right, good arm, right, strong arms, huh? Thank you. All right, let's do this. All right, who's feeling lucky? All right, okay, but thank you, Denise. Do remember there are feedback forms, and good feedback is appreciated. Now, let's do a drawing here. Give you guys some hardware. And do you have a, a bag of tickets? All right, let's... Uh, Let's leave that running there. You guys like the video, and please enjoy. So, all right, Red Hat employees are excluded. If you guys need to see the terms and conditions, you can see me afterward. All right, so, let's see here. Nine, one, five, four, oh, three, six. Okay, all right. Thank you. All right, thank you, sir. Okay, I'm going to do one more here. I need to get your name and info afterward, if you would stay and give that to me afterward. Uh, no, please, please, come, take, take a board. Take a board. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. There you go. Excellent. Great, thank you. All right, so next, 915460. All right. All right. So, thank you. Thanks. Board, ticket. Again, I'll get your info afterward. All right. I'm going to discard that one. I think that was test one earlier. 
915-406. All right, thank you. All right. All right, and I'll take that. Handshake. And a board. All right. Winners, please see me afterward. I need to get your information for legal reasons. Nothing bad. I just get in trouble if I don't. So. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Again, many firsts here. Please come take a look afterward if you'd like at the Fedora booth. Thank you very much.